Welcome to the Spirited Advocate Podcast, brought to you by the Distilled Spirits Council of the United States, the leading voice for the distilled spirits industry. Now your host, Chris Wonger. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Spirited Advocate Podcast. Check this out. You know, we're uh, embarking on celebrating National Bourbon Heritage Month, and uh, I am really pleased to say that we have a freaking legend on this podcast. And let me just say this, uh, Bill Samuels, Chairman Emeritus of Makers Mark, who has been on the forefront of leading the way for bourbon for many, many years, uh, is a dear, dear, uh, I, I would even say a family friend. I don't know if he would say that, but <laughs> a mentor of mine uh, for 25 years, uh, my family, his family, uh, we go way back, and I've just had the privilege of uh, being with this uh, this celebrity and uh, this titan for the industry. So, Bill, thank you for being with us, and thank you uh, for all of your leadership. And, uh, you know, we're on the cusp of National Bourbon Heritage Month. Uh, uh, we appreciate you being here. Well, it wasn't too many years ago that... Uh... National Bourbon Month didn't really mean very much, and it's a real pleasure to see it move to the forefront of of what's on everybody's mind. Absolutely. If you recall, back in uh, the late 2000s, we uh, got a resolution passed, if you remember, by Senator Senator Jim Bunny. I uh, sure do. Resolution celebrating bourbon, and uh, you were a big help in that regard. Bill, tell us, uh, well... Tell us the story of Maker's Mark, if you could. And I know it starts with your mom and daddy uh, and you growing up in Bardstown. Uh, could you just give us a snapshot of how the great Maker's Mark story uh, started for all of our viewers and listeners? Well, it's it's like a lot of entrepreneurial stories in that uh, timing is everything. And their timing was so bad, it was perfect. Because if you're going to do something, do it out of the crowd. And uh, Dad decided that he didn't have anything to do. He had mustered out of the uh, the, the Navy during the war and uh, was looking for something to do. Mom was looking to have him do something because he was getting in her way at the farm. And so he, he it, it was a good time. Uh, distilleries were shutting down. There's not much you can do with an old bourbon distillery other than make bourbon. And so he was able to get back in it in an experimental kind of way. This was this was going to be his retirement hobby. His whole purpose was to see if he couldn't massively improve on the quality of the old family recipe. We had, I mean, we've owned and operated distilleries in Kentucky since before Kentucky was Kentucky. And uh, this would give him something to do that he was interested in. Uh, I don't think he ever had any idea that it might be commercially successful. Uh, he talked about it to all his industry buddies as a hobby. And when he started doing that, they started helping him. And so it really was a collaboration of, uh, of friends, all who owned distilleries. And to be honest, I wasn't paying much attention to what was going on. I was trying to play basketball and, and get out of high school and, and go to engineering school and become a rocket scientist and all. So I didn't pay much attention to it, and I had no idea if the whiskey was any good or not. Or, and I had less thought as 
as to whether he would be successful. And this was really mom's job. Uh, every time things would kind of grind down, she would uh, come up with a good idea. <laughs> uh, she, never, she never worked for the company, but she kept coming up with good ideas. Uh, and most of them took a while to, to work their way out. Like, I mean, she really invented bourbon tourism. She, uh, she, she came up with the idea that the old distillery, rather than tear the old buildings down, hell, let's save them and fix them up and see if it can become the industry's first national historic landmark. And she had, as a lawyer, she had me working on that for a couple of years. And remember, I didn't even work for her, but every time she said do something, you just did it. Yeah, you jumped. <laughs> Moved on. And, and Bill, she was the one that came up with the red wax. That well, she did that. That was out of desperation. She, uh, uh, we were running out of money. Dad wasn't going to buy any whiskey on the open market. This was his... This was his hobby, and he was just going to wait it out. And she she was really proud of him for the first four or five years of waiting it out. And then she realized what that meant to our lifestyle when we didn't have any income for six and a half years. And she panicked, and she had great taste. And so she took over the job of designing the package. And it was it was all phases of it, from the little pinch in the uh, the the neck, which uh, which meant that yeah. the bourbon was gonna, uh, that's right it. That, that little that's pinch it. is that's that's very important. That's where you get the the gargling sound as the whiskey comes out. She, she fought with the glass company over that for six months, and she was a chemist, so she was pretty much at ease working on the wax. Uh, she collected antique pewter. And uh, the name Maker's Mark is generically what you have on silver, Hallmark, and in pewter, it's the touch mark. And so before very long, she had it all designed. And the very first bottle she made was out of paper mache because we didn't have any contacts with the glass company at the time. And That's so amazing. That's amazing. I mean, and I think the total cost of the package design was for the chicken wire in the, the, uh, the paper mache frame is about $3. Not bad. And what's amazing about Maker's Mark is every bottle is customized, right? Every bottle is hand dipped. She and, insisted uh, on that. And uh, really everything they did down there was not for the short term, but for the long term. And one of the things that she insisted on uh, was that we continued to to hand dip the bottles, even if machinery became available that could do it. And here we are. She's been deceased about 40 years now, and every bottle's hand dip. Holding strong. Uh, look, for anybody who hasn't been in Loretta, Kentucky and visited the Maker's Mark uh, distillery, it is it is pure, pure magic in every sense of the word. And great credit certainly goes uh, to Bill. Uh, Bill's mom and daddy and all of the above. Now, you've got an interesting story because you grew up in Bardstown, right? Yeah. Uh, right there with uh, many of the legends. Could you just give us a snapshot of uh, some of the great stories uh, that you've had with uh, Jim Beam and, you know, all, all of the legends and what's brilliant about uh, the Kentucky bourbon business, even though 
you know, uh, you're living next to competitors, right? Uh, it's really an extended family. Well, I had it explained to me early on that uh, uh, that the the bourbon distillers were more like the uh, the pioneers going west. They had to circle the wagons because while they were competitors, the real enemy wasn't each other. It was the it was the Women's Christian Temperance Union. It was the Anti Saloon League. It was Kentucky and Cary Nation, uh, and then it was every legislature in the country. As prohibition started, it didn't start in 1920. It started in 1877. Yeah. So you kept losing markets, and and it really de- developed uh, relationships between the distillers that exist today. And I love it. I mean, I, it's so health. It's the reason, the fact that we all work together and look after each other, uh, that the bourbon trail works so well. Absolutely. It's it's the number one comment that we get on the bourbon trail. My God, it's just seamless going from one distillery to the next because everybody brags on everybody else. Absolutely. You told a great story uh, at the American Distilling Institute Conference. You and I were there and had the opportunity to speak there about what's unique about in Kentucky is when you visit a distillery, the folks at the distillery are going to make sure to encourage uh, those visitors to be sure to check out the next distillery, right? And that's the essence of the Kentucky Bourbon Trail, right? And provide good directions because most of us are out in the country. <laughs> right. And <laughs> I've gotten lost uh, going to Loretta a couple of times. so It's worth a try. Everybody should come at least once and... Uh, uh, the motels are getting better. The restaurants are are really good in the communities where we have distilleries, and I would encourage it. I got to tell everybody uh, just a quick story. Uh, Haley Barber, who is a good friend of mine and Bill's, uh, was a, a very prominent politician and uh, certainly a longtime Maker's Mark fan. Uh, Bill and I uh, had the opportunity to take Haley uh, to the Maker's Mark distillery, and uh, we're driving over the hill, and uh, Haley Barber at the time said, oh my gosh, I've died and gone to Mecca, and Bill was driving, and uh, it was quite an experience. You remember that, Bill? I sure do, and I remember that uh, that night when he was making a speech at a, <laughs> That's right. a, a meeting, he gave me a job, and that was to to, to keep an eye on his left hand. And when he starts tapping it on the table, it means bring him another drink. Absolutely. He, he, he and he delivered a phenomenal speech uh, to boot. So, He's amazing. What, uh, Bill, your parents, what did they teach you about entrepreneurship? I mean, uh, you, you know, you mentioned uh, your daddy kind of embarked on this as a hobby, uh, but it's amazing, uh, you know, how Maker's Mark has really shared uh, joy around the world. Uh, could you talk about entrepreneurship and why that's so important in the Maker's Mark way? I think it's got more to do with uh, uh, with the pieces of entrepreneurship. Uh, both mom and dad were very self-reliant individuals. They believed in meritocracy uh, that if you worked hard and if you had good ideas and and your values were good, then good things would happen. Uh, and both of them were extremely hard workers. And uh, 
And those are the pieces that uh, uh, that led him to do what he did and kind of led me because really the only contribution I had was to not get too concerned about how ridiculous this whole idea was. Eventually, bourbon will catch up. Eventually, makers will find a spot uh, and you just lower your head and go. And it was uh, when I went into the presidency at 75, those were the tough years for me because I didn't have him to lean on and there didn't look like there was much ahead. Yeah. Uh, I mean, we could grind out a living in Kentucky and a couple places like that. And then that wonderful accident of the Wall Street Journal uh, celebrating mom and dad's creation. That was August of 1980. And then all of a sudden bourbon was credible. Bakers was credible. And all the fine bars and restaurants, all East Coast, West Coast, Chicago, New Orleans, Atlanta, uh, they had to have a bottle of our whiskey. And then, of course, that started the revolution. Other people figured, well, hell, they can make fine bourbon, too. Absolutely. And we, and we went from distilleries shutting down to distilleries reopening and reopening around the country, which, uh, which hadn't happened before. For all of our listeners, just so you're aware, in 1980, the Wall Street Journal told the story of Maker's Mark, and it really put it on put it put it on the map from a national perspective. And it, it's it's gone off like a rocket ship. Bill, one of the things that I've always found fascinating about your approach, which you've taught me a lot about, is buzz. You would take buzz about a about a product more than anything it's worth its weight in gold could you elaborate a little bit about uh the importance of buzz and uh word of mouth selling one bottle at a time well it really goes back to satisfying a customer that doesn't buy you anything you have to wow the customer exceed expectations and of course, you have to have a discoverable product to start with or service. Sure. And then from there, you got to just just keep paddling and make sure that everybody gets it in front of them and gives them a chance to, wow, I can't wait to tell my friends. And this was really important to us because uh, mom was a chemist, dad was a mechanical engineer, I was an aerospace engineer and a lawyer, and we didn't know a damn thing about marketing. And uh, mom and dad had a tremendous amount of confidence in what they're doing, that it was discoverable. And I just took it on blind faith and went on the road for 15 years. And so my contribution was finding customers for their wonderful creation. Absolutely. And so you were an aspiring rocket scientist. You blew something up, I think, in, (laughs) in Berkeley, Berkeley, California. If you could share that story, and then you found your way to Vanderbilt to go to law school, right? Well, uh, it really started with Sputnik, and that was October 57. I graduated from high school the next year. Uh, They had just formed NASA, and I, I, I was watching that the first president of NASA, executive director, came from Case Institute of Technology. He was the president and he didn't retire or resign. He just went on leave. And I'm figuring that if he's still affiliated with the school and I'm interested in aerospace, I need to go to Case. 
because he can probably help all of us that are interested in aerospace industry to get a job. And I knew I couldn't get it on merit. It had to be on knowing somebody. <laughs> so yeah, that's yeah. what I did. And uh, ended up with a fellowship uh, to Berkeley to graduate school. But it was it was mainly working. There was so much to be done. The graduate programs were, uh, the one at Berkeley was actually moved up to Davis. And we worked at the aerospace, the Aerojet General Corporation uh, facilities in Sacramento and worked on Polaris and Gemini and had a little accident one night when we were testing our new concept rocket nozzle and it broke loose from the test bay. And this is about a 3,600 pound mistake, went up in the air, came down through a corner of the executive office building. And uh, fortunately it was late at night. Nobody was there. We didn't kill anybody, but they killed us. Absolutely. Yeah, I was one and done in aerospace. Exactly. You and three other buddies, right? That were yeah, trying got them to all. Them. All three of us got. And we've stayed close. That's that's if it hadn't have been for the firing, my guess is we'd have drifted off and you know done other things and we'd never been in contact. Absolutely. It it wasn't funny at the time, but we we laugh about it now. Bill, uh uh Colonel Sanders, Kentucky Fried Chicken. Uh, you've got some stories about Colonel Sanders, obviously, I think, right? Could you share well, that with us? Well, he was, uh, I think he was, well, he was my father's Jim Romney partner. So, so that's kind of where it was, but he, uh, he had a, a, a locally successful business. It started as a motel, uh, had the little ends, the little buildings, and it was across from the gas station. And he, he realized he could make more money uh, if he had a little restaurant associated with the motel. And so he converted the gas station into his uh, uh, restaurant and he bought a deep fryer and a pressure cooker and invented uh, a fast prepared fried chicken. But he knew he had enough the marketing sense not to call it that. And it was, uh, that's that's where the finger licking chicken came from. And uh, he retired. He stayed around the house six months. Uh, he got one social security check in 1954. And uh, Claudia ran him out of the house. So he, he was kind of like dad. He had to go do something. The only thing he knew how to do was fix chicken. So uh, he started going around to existing family restaurants in Kentucky and placing his finger licking good ch chicken as a menu item. And he was at the house, he would stay with friends. And I had just got my driver's permit in uh, June of 1955. And I'm home and I got a horrible job that summer. I got to paint and scrape about two and a half miles of fence. He comes in and says, you know, I'm looking for somebody to drive. You're not doing anything this summer, are you? And I said, no, sir, I'm not doing a thing. I'd love to do that. Anything but defense. And dad let me do it. So uh, uh, we took off and went all over Kentucky. And it was it was quite an experience. I mean, not only was he a great salesman, he doesn't get near the credit for being a quality control freak that he was. He, it was it was no nonsense in the kitchen, and when we'd go back the second time to to uh, inspect these restaurants, we didn't tell them what we were doing, 
and snuck up on him. And every, every once in a while, he would blow the roof off the place. I bet um, all for that great chicken, fried chicken. Well, it, yeah, it was it was gravy. It was coleslaw. It was the whole meal. Uh, and when we would go into a restaurant the first time, he he never ever did not get a sale. And, wow. And the minute he walked in, I'd start putting the menu clip-ons on the menu because I knew it was, you know, was going to work. And the whole business was out of his pickup truck. And he got a nickel a ticket. And it was honor system with the restaurants. That's amazing. And I bet you that experience, driving around Kentucky with him as he's building this, you know. Uh, well, he wasn't very well known at the time. He was real well known in Corbin, Kentucky. And he was getting real uh, well known in the rest of Kentucky at that time, but but he he just talked all time, and uh, and I'm just learning to drive. I'm having a hell of a time. These country roads aren't all that good anyway down here, and and I'm having a hard time staying on the road. And he's yapping all the time. I this <laughs> I needed earplugs. <laughs> trying to focus, but that experience in itself probably helped guide helped guided you a little bit. Uh, in leading makers more to all the prominent growth, right? Uh, in terms I think, of the I think the main lesson I learned from him was the quality control piece and really how fanatic he was about doing things right. Yeah, absolutely. And it shows with every bottle of makers more. Bill, the, you've always been very passionate and active uh, engagement with government relations because you realize right through your support for the Kentucky Distillers Association, your longtime support uh, engaging with members of Congress and state legislators and local politicians, uh, uh, your support of discus and all of the above. Could you just uh, give our viewers a little bit of a snapshot on why that is critically important? Uh, for the sake of our industry and in support of the Kentucky Bourbon Trail and all of the above? Well, when we started, uh, not only did bourbon not have any customers to speak of, uh, the environment to get customers was terrible. And uh, 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 wine was, uh, was on in the day. They were changing laws and regulations all across the country. and so. One of Dad's premises about being successful was that we had to make more pie. We just had to expand, and we had to do that through collaboration. We had to convince our uh, legislators that we weren't all criminals like they thought we were before Prohibition and give us a chance to help the economy and to help other people, help uh, collateral industries like Cooperage and and glass and labels and it just uh it was a long slow fight because i mean i remember talking to many of our kentucky legislators and if the word whiskey or liquor was in a bill they weren't going to vote for it it didn't make any difference what the content of the legislation was or how convincing the arguments were that this was really good for kentucky and and also for the united states uh just to have trade. Uh, American whiskeys never got outside the United States. We, uh, nobody paid any attention. Our, our trade officers weren't interested. And yet we were bringing in all this uh, yeah. spirit from Scotland and 
fine gins from England and and even imported wines and beers. And you've been all over the world. You've been all over the world from Russia to Asia and all of the above. Is there a particular uh, story about introducing Maker's Mark in American whiskey in one market uh, that just kind of comes to mind? Well, uh, <laughs> I, I hate to say this. It was a little embarrassing. Uh, I got this idea that I needed to buy Kentucky Colonel's uniform and take it when I went overseas and wear it when we would have a big event at the uh, the embassy yeah. in the country or so. And, and this went on pretty good till I got to Japan. And they thought I was Colonel Sanders. And you should have seen the people that showed up. (laughs) For about 15 minutes, I said, hell, I'm the the most popular guy over here. (laughs) Then I realized it wasn't me. They they were interested. They were looking for the actual Colonel Sanders and some fried chicken, right? But you got to introduce them to some great makers, Mark, right? In Japan, they love American whiskey, right? Oh, they do. Yeah. And have for a long time. Yeah, I think a lot of that's got to do with that big investment they made in Georgetown, Kentucky. Absolutely. Uh, no doubt about it. Uh, and Bill, you've been to Capitol Hill. You've been at state legislators. I remember uh, this must have been 15 years ago. Sadly, the Kentucky state legislature at the time and one particular legislator was thinking about increasing the state excise tax on Kentucky bourbon and American whiskey. And you had the idea, if I recall correctly, to go up to the Capitol in Frankfurt and stand outside and pour a little whiskey on the steps to bring some attention to that. You remember that? Uh, Could you tell that story a little bit? Well, I do. And I lost a good friend and it was, uh, uh, it was a certain, president of the uh, Kentucky Senate, a very good friend. And uh, he didn't try to do it with excise tax. He tried to to double sales taxes. Uh, so it wasn't quite so visible. And, uh, and just because of the way that, uh, that we talked to each other and collaborate, uh, called all the distillers and, and they thought it was a good, I didn't want to be up there standing by myself. So so we got eight or nine of us together and uh, and really made a mockery of the whole thing. It was, but that was the end. That was the end of ignoring a rapidly growing industry that was paying a hell of a lot of taxes, creating a lot of high paid jobs. And I think from that moment on, uh, uh, the, the listening quotient went up. And of course, we had the same responsibility. We always went to our legislators with, if it's not in the best interest of Kentucky, we're not coming to you. Yeah, absolutely. And that 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 little experiment, it drew national press coverage. It was truly, truly phenomenal. And I, I mean, at the time, you just think about it. I mean, uh, bourbon is Kentucky's signature, you know, that along with horse racing and the fact that at the time that one individual uh, didn't see the forest through the trees on that uh, was really a changing moment uh, for sure. I think that was like in maybe 2002, 2003, somewhere, somewhere like that. T- 
tell us about the Maker's Mark Ambassador Program because it's phenomenal. And what's unique about Maker's Mark Ambassador Program is you have ambassadors all around the country and the world, really, Mm -hmm. that are passionate advocates uh, for Maker's Mark. Uh, And it's really selling one bottle at a time. Could you elaborate on that? Well, it started out of a necessity. Uh, Up until that Wall Street Journal article, about 90% of our customers were in Kentucky. And Dad and I knew about 80% of the 90% personally. So we didn't need to do marketing. And and we didn't need to do advertising and, and the rest of it because we were constantly running into customers. He was on a number of boards. I was on a number of boards. We were both very active in the communities. And uh, things were going along fine. And then that Wall Street Journal article hit. And all of a sudden, we had important customers all over the country and uh, what to do. And so what what we put together was a frequent flyer program like the airlines uh, without the incentives to buy. Because it really wasn't about trying to sell somebody something. It was trying to connect with people that were trying to connect with us. And we've kept it that's that same way, and it's grown, and the loyalties, I mean, it's just amazing. And for an old retired guy like me, it's really special because when we have ambassador days at the distillery, I get to go down and uh, and have fun yeah. with all my friends. And they come from all over the country. Now we'll, we'll get 20% from, uh, from outside the country. Absolutely. And if you could tell us a little bit about Rob Samuels. Rob, uh, as you know, is on point leading Maker's Mark today. I know you're keeping a good, close eye on him. Uh, but uh, Rob, in the business. But uh, yeah, that's our secret. That's our secret. But Rob's doing a phenomenal job trying to fill your great shoes. Well, uh, probably the thing, if I had to pick something from an organizational standpoint that I'm proud of, it's making two successful transitions. One from my father's, and he just said, as he left, don't screw up the whiskey. And if I had screwed up the whiskey, it wouldn't make any difference because it wasn't a very big company anyway. Uh, To now, where uh, Rob and I had a transition 10 years ago, and we went through some really serious and rigorous testing to make sure that he was the right one. I mean, we were not committed to family. We had to get competence. Yeah. And uh, uh, he's my youngest son. And of the four children, he was far and away the best qualified to run the business. And uh, it's been a really easy transition. First part of the transition was like it was with me. Go do something outside the company first. Although mine was a failure as a rocket scientist, uh, his was not a failure. He spent 10 years in the industry uh, running businesses for other people. That's right. And uh, it was it was exactly the right thing to do. But but he's uh, he's really doing a lot better job than I did. And it's a lot more complicated business than it, than it was when I was running it. Absolutely. So, Bill, I want to ask you a couple of kind of sidebar questions as we wrap things up. Uh, uh, are you a thrill of victory type person or an agony of defeat? This is kind of a random question, but, you know, some people are motivated 
when, you know, hard times come or somebody's motivated, you know, for, for the big win, you know, you've had, you know, challenges in your life and opportunities and a brilliant career. And you're uh, going to leave behind someday when you go to heaven, you know, just oh, phenomenal, <laughs> Uh, phenomenal, you know, uh, history for, for American whiskey and Maker's Mark and all of the above. Reflecting on your, your uh, 81 years, if I may say that, uh, uh, what was, what's been that trigger for you? The thrill of victory or an agony of defeat? Well, I translate the agony of defeat into competition. And, uh, the very best thing that has happened to us 10 heritage distillers in Kentucky is all the craft distillers. They have really caused us to up our game. And I have really, really enjoyed that. A lot, even though I've been retired through about half of it, uh, the, the unforeseen competition getting us out of our comfort zone, getting me out of my comfort zone. And I'm not a comfort zone kind of person. Yeah. So, but it, I mean, it was exhilarating. Uh, to me, the ultimate prize comes, I would say right now, dad is having his prize because he wasn't so much interested in the wins and losses while he was alive. He wanted to create something that would last. So he was playing to stay in the game, not to win the game. Yeah. And you see so many, uh, so many upstarts being and then back down. Sure. Uh, he wanted to be there and he wanted to see it strong enough to survive. And I think if anything, when I go, I can say to him that he won. Now, Rob's going to have to say to me, I won <laughs> three years after that. And and so we're not there yet. I, it's the it's the possibility of losing. It's the it's the competition that. Uh, that's the best part. Absolutely. And it is pretty amazing, you know, with the, with the rise of the craft distilling movement, it, it has really enriched and made oh. the industry that much better. Right. And in in so many ways, I yeah. mean, all the individuality, the ideas, and at least the ones I've met, I mean, they're all first class individuals too. They, this, the, the, they're not first and foremost opportunist. They're uh, they're really in it to uh, to create something important. Absolutely, absolutely, and we saw that when we were at the ADI at, at the ADI oh, earlier in the week. Well, look, Bill, on behalf of the Distilled Spirits Council, on behalf of, on behalf of me, Amy, uh, <laughs> Beckett, and Holden, and uh, you know our family, uh, you have been a mentor for me. Uh, you have, uh, wouldn't get into this, but, uh, you have, uh, played some tricks on me during my career that have been good lessons. Remember the letter, uh, to, oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, we should go into that, but, uh, uh, look, I, I just can't tell you how much I value, uh, the time that we've spent together, but more importantly, what you've done for American whiskey the U.S. distilled spirits industry collectively and all of the above. The Spirited Advocate podcast was brought to you by the Distilled Spirits Council of the United States. If you'd like to be a guest speaker on the show, 
or send us topic suggestions to cover, please contact us at podcast at distilledspirits.org. And please like and share these episodes. Your support is very appreciated.